Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Fitton Costello. Fitton, thank you very much for coming on. The Business of Betting podcast is proudly brought to you by the Betfair Hub from Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you want expert articles from pro punters, from building automated models to betting psychology, check out the Betfair Hub. Betfair.com.au slash hub. Gamble responsibly. Today I'm joined by Fitton Costello. Fitton, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Tell me background, because as far as I understand, Irish fellow living in Amsterdam has been in and around gambling in many different ways as well as other industries, but tell us the shorthand version of how you got to this point. Uh, sure. So I you know, I always think that there's two types of people in the industry. There's people who are kind of born into the industry. So you've got like a, a father or it's a family business or you have some sort of connection to it. Um, and then there's randoms like me who just stumble into it by completely by mistake. So by background, I'm a, I'm a marketing nerd by background. And it would have been, say, 2007. I was looking, I was living in Dublin. Obviously, I'm Irish, living in Dublin. And I was looking for my next, uh, my next move. I'd assumed because I wanted to do more more digital marketing, do it at a really high level, and I'd kind of assumed that I'd do that in London because, particularly in 2008, uh, 2007, 2008, it didn't really exist as a as an option in in Ireland, and obviously London's got a massive agency scene. However, I met the guys from Paddy Power, and at the time they were based in a, for want of a better phrase, a, a converted shed in or warehouse in Tala, which is quite a rough part of, of South Dublin. And they were super keen on conquering the UK with the paddypower.com website. So I went and bought copies of the Racing Post and betting for dummies and learned how to, you know, bet and gamble and prepped as much as I could ahead of the interviews and went in and just blown away by the quality of the of the people in the building and and the level of ambition. And one thing led to another, and I, I ended up kind of setting up their digital marketing department, and that was kind of my first entry into the market and or into the industry. And I think after a few weeks, I completely fell in love because it was super tough digital marketing. So I think anybody who can do marketing in the gambling space can uh, do it in any industry to an incredibly high level. And then the the buzz and the pace of the industry is quite intoxicating. So if you're if you're working for like say an FMCG, you've got to worry about Christmas, you've got to worry about Mother's Day or some kind of key events. But when every weekend's a big deal, plus on top of that you've got World Cups, Euros, Cheltenham's, Grand Nationals, uh, big fight nights, Derby weekends, etc. There's always something big that's coming next, and that's really addictive, and it's very hard to um, it's very hard to get away from. So that's how I how I stumbled into the into the industry by mistake. Let's talk about operators for a moment, if you don't mind. It seems like a yep. really hard task. You've obviously got different segments of your customer base that want different things. Obviously, generally, they want to be engaged, let's say, but I think there's there's probably a few different buckets. And from my point of view, growing up in Australia, seeing what Sportsbet have done, uh, having more of a grasp on the global industry now, seeing how, how well Paddy Power Betfair has evolved and their marketing approach and now FanDuel here in the US as I sort of see them as the market leader or one of the market leaders now, Tell us what that inner circle looks like with those marketing teams and what makes a company like Flutter Group now such a, a marketing leader. Obviously, I'm, I'm far removed from, from Flutter these days, but it, it's when you look at, say, Paddy Power, and I actually used to work for PokerStars as well, so I've kind of done quite a lot of the, the Flutter Group as, a, as, a, as an employee. What they're really good at and what Paddy Power was super, when I was there, was super passionate about was they never forgot the customer. So, you know, the, the mantra was fun, fair, friendly, and that really came through in everything they tried to do. So it didn't matter if you were the, you know, five pound a week player or you were a high roller or a VIP, everybody got treated incredibly well. Things like the, the money back specials, the, the justice payouts, if a, a decision went 
you know, if the referee made a, a ridiculously bad decision, they would pay out on the results as if he hadn't made the decision. And these kind of things, which are, you know, they're actually really obvious marketing tactics, but nobody does it. Um, people have copied it since to some degrees, but it's what they've managed to do is just be punter friendly in a very straightforward way, no nonsense kind of way, give people stuff to talk about and provide good value for money. And I think when you look at, say, like you mentioned, Sportsbet in Australia, so Cormac was actually my boss at Paddy Power, so he became the CEO in Sportsbet. And then Barney Evans, who's now the CEO, was the marketing director. Um, Like, I learned more about marketing in one meeting with Barney than I have in my whole career. Um, So I think what people also miss is the the depth of talent that Paddy Power has that, say, if you look at the Flutter Group, if you look at Skybet, Skybet's phenomenal in the UK and the, the depth of people that they've got there on their side of things, poker stars, like just the, the relentless focus poker stars put on producing a fantastic poker experience for players and the, just everything went into that. So I think what's really interesting about the group is the each of them are kind of very different companies, very different brands, but that common ethos of really looking after the customer comes through. Um, and a, a lot of companies talk about it, um, but I think they're one of the few that actually really deliver on it. Yeah, it seems like it's no accident, just given the scope of their success and, and obviously the people you've referenced uh, coming from the European market to Australia and now obviously seeing what's happening to a, a large extent here in the US. That fun, fair and friendly mentality, and you talked about actually executing on that. How does that actually play out in reality? Because I'm guessing there's... Uh, a lot of challenges, even just someone like Conor McGregor, for example, you know, he is an eclectic character, let's say, and he's taking on the US with the UFC. He's obviously, you know, comes from that part of the world where it it may not be easy to find a marketing campaign around someone like that or know specifically what to do. It's obviously easy to capitalize on, you know, the popularity, that betting event with, uh, with Floyd Mayweather, for example, is a once in a lifetime probably thing for most people. How to just by way of example, how would how would one approach that? And obviously, you may not have been there at the time, but just... I, I definitely wasn't there for that. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a really tricky experience because if you got someone like Connor, where like I'm saying Connor, like I know him, but it, you know the, the things that have come out in the press about Connor, um, even recently, um, it's a very difficult character to get behind as a brand. And I think as a marketing person, you're, you're in a very difficult position because you, you, you're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So if you sponsor them, then, you know, you're going to attract a certain amount of um, hatred. And then if you don't sponsor them, you kind of get the same kind of thing. You're not backing somebody, say, Irish or, or whatever. I think what they did with sponsoring Mayweather and sponsoring the, the, uh, the underwear for the weigh-in was actually the right move. And it's completely in keeping what they've done with other fights. Uh, Mayweather was clearly going to win. Um, anybody who knows anything about boxing, uh, you know, it, no matter how good Connor is, he's not a Mayweather. And I think doing something that's a little bit fun, it's it's unexpected. So I think that that's probably part of it as well. So the expected thing to do, the easy thing to do, is sponsor Connor, right? So if you're a, if you're a lazy marketing director, it's what you it's what you do. The unexpected and the bit more controversial and creates an interesting conversation. So, like one of the things I learned from Barney was, if you've got four guys sitting in a bar, uh, well, it probably doesn't happen anymore with Corona, but <laughs> let's imagine in the olden days when there was four guys sitting in a bar having a pint, uh, talking about just you know bullshitting and having the crack, you got to give them something to talk about. Sponsoring Connor doesn't give them anything to talk about. It gives you exposure, but it doesn't give you anything to talk about. Sponsoring Mayweather gives them something to talk about because that's an interesting thing to do. And when you look at all of the kind of the PR stunts that they've done, and it's some of them been hit me, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing to, to do consistently, but they've always given people things to talk about. And I think that's really interesting. It's very difficult to do, um, but nobody else actually does it. Um, and nobody else, there's, there's no other real brand or companies in the industry who are really willing to step outside the comfort zone and be controversial and get noticed in a way that is clever and interesting. And that's, that's, 
I could talk about uh, so it's the way to think about it is in, a, in the gambling industry like if you're a sports book or a casino or whatever you're effectively a me too product like if you're a, a once a week ten dollars on the cowboys to win type punter it doesn't really matter what the odds are it doesn't really matter what the vip program is it really like most of these things don't matter because it's only ten dollars and the differences are you can't see it so actually what really matters is the brand and that's kind of marketing 101 if you're a if you know if you're a commodity product it, it's all about your branding and they've you know poker star or sorry paddy power have been fantastic about building a brand uh, obviously the the fan jewel DraftKings kind of saga about building brands in the us has been phenomenal poker stars you know the brand loyalty poker stars had um is legendary skybet in the uk as well so what they've again what they've all got in common is they've all built brands that are recognizable and and have a loyalty and have an audience and have a reason why people should care yeah and for a consumer like like let's say me uh it's largely unassuming you don't necessarily see it and feel it and touch it every day uh it kind of creeps up on you a little bit and just by way of another example run us through your thoughts on you know the flip side of mcgregor let's say someone on a scale of mcgregor to messi let's say obviously well-known superstar but on a comparison to mcgregor i would say he's rather boring uh and you probably need a completely different approach to how you go about a marketing plan around someone like Messi. So just off the top of your head, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but we talked a bit about McGregor. If you had, you know, your mandate was to, you know, spend some money around Messi and and build that brand, how how do you go about that when it's completely the flip side? It's so hard um, because well, there's a couple of different things. Like, how are you going to judge success? So the the thing about the our industry and marketing departments marketing departments are typically not measured on brand metrics like you would be if you were a, an fmcg so if i was a you know a, a brand manager at a unilever or a you know a mars group or whatever i'd have a very different metrics than i would in the gambling industry the industry as a whole is typically measured on acquisition so how many new players or how many new customers have been acquired with something like messi because he's got such a global audience, you know, if you can't, so let's say, you know, if you've got, a, if you've sponsored a Messi, well then actually you're, you're talking to people in Asia, Africa, Latin America, as well as, you know, the Spanish speaking world plus the UK. Plus, you know, so if you think of the actual reach he has as an individual, a lot of it's going to go to waste unless you're truly a global website that can accept players from, from everywhere. So immediately you've got to really kind of think about, how do we measure success and which geographies are we going to focus on? The second thing where a lot, where a lot of people go wrong with these kind of sponsorship deals is all the money goes into the sponsorship. So you've just given Messi, you know, half a billion euros or whatever he's demanding because he's a, a global rock star. But you've probably got to spend the same again on activation and actually doing something about it. So now he's got to be front and center in all your TV campaigns, your VIP activation. Can you do clever stuff? where the ordinary fans can get to engage with him in some sort of way. Um, and I think this is incredibly different. I think Poker Stars is probably the best example where they did the the Star series where they'd bring in celebrities and sports people and they'd actually have them playing poker. And I think that's quite compelling viewing because as a customer, you're seeing uh, a sport like I think they had Nadal and, and a few others, some of the comedian, Chris Rock and these kind of guys playing poker and they've been coached by a pro and stuff and i think that's quite compelling because as a player you can relate to that and you can learn the lessons and you can kind of be involved in a way that even though it's basically just an extended tv ad where if you're a sports book it's much harder um even though he is actually a football player and stuff because it's still completely abstract and you know is it actually your team and, and these kind of things so i'd actually run a mile from it because i think it's incredibly difficult without massive budgets to to do something with it so changing changing tracks a little bit as a consumer from your experience you know in, in many different <clears throat> functions and departments and areas what does the end consumer really want when it comes to a sports book experience let's say uh you you touched on a little bit there with you know price may not matter for a for a sunday ten dollar nfl better but do you have a grasp on exactly what they're looking for or is it way more nuanced than how simply I'm putting it? Um, you, you've 
it's it's a it, it's a very nebulous marketing bullshit term, but it, it is about experience. So, but it's about the brand experience. So when you the, the difficulty the the every brand will have is that they'll survey their customers and they'll ask their customers, you know, what's important. Uh, in some way or another, you're trying to figure out what's important to the customer. And when you put somebody on the spot like that, they'll immediately say the odds and they'll say free bets. And it will lead you, the answers will lead you down a very price bonus focused um, answer scheme. Or it kind of, you know, and then you end up building your marketing campaigns around price because your your survey has said pricing is important and you increase the, the headline amount of your free bet because your survey has said free bets are important. But actually, it's really about how do you deliver a great experience consistently and how do you do it? Are you doing the 90% of things that your customers need really, really, really well? So, so a great example of this is customer service. So as an industry, we're probably not famous for amazing customer service. But if you take take poker, like when I was at PokerStars, for example, there was a rule in the PokerStar in the customer support department that they had to answer every question. And so it actually became a running meme on two on the two plus two forms, where people were sending in stupid questions and then sharing the answers they were getting from the, <laughs> the sports department. All right, so it'd be things like, you know, what should I have for dinner tonight? And um, can you give me the answer in the form of a haiku? And <laughs> right, and they and they got it. And like, fair play to the support team. It's just super super smart guys, super passionate about poker, and they, they did a phenomenal job. And what would end up happening then, though, is, is like somebody comes onto the forum and starts, oh, this Poker Stars is rigged. And Poker Stars never had to reply to those answers because the forum users themselves would jump all over it and just, you know, shut it down. So, and I know I'm using poker to make the example, but if you look at, say, justice payouts where, you know, the, the ref or whoever's clearly made a bad decision or, you know, a customer emails in and say, hey, I'm a loyal customer. Can I have a free bet and support, have the authority to just kind of take care of that or um, how you look after your regular customers. It, it, it's those kind of, the, those relationships that are far more important or something goes wrong and how the company handles it. So if the company makes a mistake or the terms and conditions on something weren't super clear and they just do the right thing, I would always say it, it's those little moments that are more important to do um than the big headline you know we're best odds or we are uh we've just signed some celebrity to be the face of our brand and these kind of things and just just doing that consistently well a great product experience just making it super easy to place your bet see what you need um like if you look at the backlash bet 365 is getting lately over there their upgrades and stuff you know people do take those kind of things super super seriously so that's what i'd be most worried about and not always being the best price or the the sharpest odds or taking the biggest action tell me what your thought process and mindset was when you were considering jumping in on the affiliate side because i'm guessing with all your experience some of it you've described and and some of the uh the things you've done in the past it was potentially something that you had to sort of consider as a next step and and what was what went into your decision making when you were thinking about it um it was basically the only thing i hadn't done on the within the industry left so it was time to kind of uh man up and get on with it so no I, i'm joking it's it was a very long process i think the the affiliate space is incredibly difficult it's incredibly competitive um because the, the barriers to entry are are zero so anybody can become an affiliate tomorrow um in most obviously the u.s licensing is probably a bit different but um in any other market it's it's you know it's two clicks of a button and all of a sudden you're an affiliate so the level of competition is huge. Um, it's a bit like hedge funds where you end up seeing the success bias. So you'll see the handful of affiliates that have made it. And everybody assumes, oh, that's easy. Look at these guys. They're doing it. I can do that. And what you don't see is you don't see the the 99% of them that have failed or you know don't make more than $100 a month or, or whatever it's going to be. So it is a super, super tough industry to get going and get traction in. Um, so it wasn't something I took lightly. I, I was incredibly lucky in terms of the the team I'm part of. Um, the team I'm part of are, you know, they've all got a lot of experience, um, both as affiliates and on the operator space. Um, so there's about we did a we did a staff session last week, and I think there's there was over 20 people on the Zoom call. Um, so we're not we're not small, and we've kind of grown pretty quickly over the last over the last few years. Um, but it does take 
a lot of people these days to make um it, it can be you know you can still be the one guy in your bedroom kind of getting things done but to operate at scale and to kind of grow it is very much a, a big team effort to to make that happen but before i wanted to do anything and what we were really kind of focused on is how do we add value so if you're kind of in kind of silicon valley vc speak you know what's our product market fit because the world isn't crying out for another affiliate website because there's there's plenty of them out there and there's a lot of them doing a fantastic job so we were really focused on the on the why and what problem are we going to try and solve first and we settled on solving the bonus problem first because we actually think that's very important to players um i'll explain why and, and then that's kind of what we've what we've cracked in when we when we kind of look at so if you look at our website our, our key product is helping people get the best bonuses and the way we're looking at that is our brand promise is to help people play with more and it's very much a case of um and again, you use the, the two examples. So you've got the, the, the $5 a week guy or lady, and then you've got the, the person who's got like a, a couple of thousand to play with and it's got a bit more time. They both need very different experiences. So the way our website is designed is if, you know, if you want to see the best value, basically, if you've got $10 to spend and you want, so what are you actually looking for? You're looking for, for gameplay and you're looking for how can I maximize my $10 to give me the most gameplay or spins or bets that I can possibly get to enjoy it the most. So it's that kind of utility of, of time. And and then the, the $10,000 guy has got the same issue, but it's just a, a slightly different time horizon or, or a different stake amount. So our product will help you navigate that. And you know, so we break down the bonuses in a way that's easy to understand. So you don't really see it as much in the US because it's still very early days, I think, in bonusing in the US. But if you look outside of America, you will see kind of really big, really big bonuses like five thousand dollars, a thousand dollars, these kind of numbers. But when you break it down, it's actually well, it's two hundred dollars in your first deposit, and it's fifty dollars in your second deposit, and it's this, this, and so there's lots of rules and lots of kind of hidden T's and C's behind the headline. So our tool breaks that out for you as well. So we show you not only so we've done all the maths for you so for your ten dollars this is actually the best bonus and you do this on your first deposit and you do this in your second deposit and you claim these free spins and this is how you're going to get the best value uh for your money and that's that's proving incredibly popular um so we are we are solving a problem and once we were once we were sure on that then it's easy to kind of build a business around that and, and start growing so what makes it so hard as you said the barrier to entry is essentially you know, 50 bucks, you set up a WordPress website pretty quickly. Twitter account is free content, you know, isn't that hard to create these days, or at least it's relatively inexpensive. And, you know, bandwidth is almost unlimited with places like, uh, you know, even podcasts or YouTube or or wherever you're looking. Mm -hmm. So all of those things individually are very simple, let's say. So what truly, what's the essence of make, what makes this so difficult? Is it SEO? Is it technology is it developers is it engineers is it trying to build something out of uh india and manila or, or somewhere else as opposed to, to doing it in la where it's probably far more expensive because you know plenty of people plenty of people try and they probably fail and they probably don't do a deep dive afterwards and figure out what happened but it is interesting to to hear someone like yourself because it's obviously not simple or everyone would be doing it but it seems like everyone tries yeah it it's there's there's kind of when you look at so what's really interesting for me is the the, the big affiliates when I was so I ran the one of my teams at Paddy Power was the affiliate team, so the biggest affiliates back then are still some of the major affiliates and probably some of the biggest or still the biggest affiliates in the UK right now, um and that's like eleven years ago, and when you look at those guys well what differentiates and they've done an amazing job and huge respect to to be so successful over such a long period of time. When you look at what they've done or what differentiates them, there's just typically three things. There's, there's, like you said, there's traffic. Um, it doesn't matter how good your website is or how many deals you've got or how great your whatever is. If you can't get people to your website in a cost-effective manner or to your product, it doesn't have to be a website these days, it could be a podcast or a Twitter account or whatever. If you can't get them to you in a cost-effective manner, it doesn't matter. So 
it could be SEO, it could be paid media, it could be social, it could be an email list, it could be whatever it is. It actually doesn't matter. It's just you need to be able to do it well and you need to be able to do it on a positive ROI basis. And if you think of all the media agencies and all the people out there right now buying and selling ads all the time, it's that's not a trivial task or all the people doing SEO or, or podcasts. So you do need some sort of advantage there that you can leverage to get the traffic in. The, the, the next thing then is you need a value added service. So there, there does need to be a why to your product. Um, so, so the obvious one would be say odds comparison. Um, you know, there's a clear why to that. It, it's a clear uh, consumer value. If you look at say odds checker in the UK, they're absolute giants and they're phenomenal at what they do. Um, so that value added service of solving a customer problem is is key as well and then ideally you build kind of like a community or some sort of brand loyalty where your product is so good and you're offering so much utility that people want to hang around they want to come back to your website and they want to so you're kind of getting that kind of returning traffic and they will tell their friends about it uh, to some degree or recommend you to somebody that they know and if you've got two of those you've got a business Uh, if you've got three of them you've got a great business um, and it's very difficult to get all, it's very difficult to get two and it's very, very difficult to get all three. So given you've been on the betting operator side uh, and, and run the affiliate team there and, and been on the affiliate side as well as, as many other roles within the industry, how does one make an argument that affiliates are an essential part of the industry and there's a, there's a net overall positive to the betting and gaming industry as opposed to a net negative to the industry? and. And I guess the counterpoint would be, why can't we just have all these marketing approaches sit within the sports book as opposed to all these affiliates happening? Um, so there's a couple of things. One is that the operators can't do it, is, is the short answer. And um, if the operators were good at SEO, there would be no affiliates. Or if the operators could do a lot of these, like an operator is not going to run an odds comparison product, as an example, or they're not going to compare and contrast bonus their bonus versus everybody else in a in a fair way so the the third party accountability and ability to help people navigate the you know if we, if we take the uk market as, as a simple example like how many hundreds of brands are there actually active in the uk market so to navigate that as a consumer is actually incredibly difficult to do um so the 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 net positive overall is there. They do provide value. They are helping people make purchasing decisions. They are warning people about bad sites or bad experiences. Um, there's obviously always the handful to give everybody the bad name. Um, but I think overall, it, it's, it is a positive. Um, obviously, from the operator's perspective, there's always that love-hate relationship, uh, depending on the operator. Ultimately, they're all looking for growth and looking for new customers. So that anybody who can deliver those in an effect in a cost-effective way is highly popular with an operator. Like I get, you know, a lot of emails every day from people wanting to get listed on our websites. Um, so the demand from the operators for affiliates is huge and kind of feels never-ending. Um, so I would say the overall, the operators are very happy with affiliates. Um, but then you know you get lazy marketing. They do silly deals. Maybe they they they've got buyers regret at some point. They've bought traffic they shouldn't have bought, or the player value isn't quite there. So there is always the case where the operators have made mistakes and you know try and blame the affiliate. And there's some affiliates you might try and take advantage of operators, particularly new brands who are desperate for growth. Um, so there is there is always in any marketplace there is always the the buyer beware. Um, but when you when I look at our partnerships and, and who we work with, it's you know we're, we're looking five to ten years down the road. So who are the brands who are going to still be in the market in the next ten years, next five years? Who are the brands who are really going to look after their players, uh, really manage retention? Um, obviously, from a, a licensing and a compliance perspective, that's a huge a huge overhead which affiliates didn't really have to deal with a few years ago. Um, so we want to make sure we're on the right side of that, and you end up in a situation where the good operators work with the good affiliates and vice versa. And that's ultimately where you want to be. And that's where you create the, the virtuous circle of, you know, there's a positive to the industry. From a US point of view, especially, 
licensing of affiliates is probably going to become the norm, I would say, over the next five, ten years, let's say. Do you think that will help with the scrutiny that the affiliate industry gets from those handful that you mentioned that might tarnish uh, the overall impact or positive impact of affiliates just because of, of some of the things? And I guess that's become life now where the you know the, the 20% that may not be doing it so well impacts far more than the 80% that do everything uh, how they should do it. Yeah, I think when you look at if, yeah, so look, I think the the U.S. licensing of affiliates is is going to be is definitely going to be the norm in other markets. Um, I think there's a there's an arms race. You know, if you look at UK and Sweden, and probably Germany coming up as well, of how can we have stricter regulations than our neighbours? Um, and and no politician's going to lose votes for being strict on gambling. So I think that's quite an easy an easy easy future scenario to see. Um. If I use the UK as a good example, so the operators, a lot of the operators are not a lot, or there's, a, there's been a lot of big fines handed out to some operators in the UK over the last few years. Um, and what's that, what that has prompted is a complete refresh of how operators look at affiliates and how they work at affiliates. Um, some operators went to the point of just closing down affiliates as a channel, um, particularly ahead of say mergers or, or acquisitions. Or, what ends up happening is, like, I, I give you a good example. I, I had a live example last week. So I had a, a small to medium-sized operator in the UK that we were onboarding, and their compliance department sent me as I had to provide as much documentation to their compliance department as I did for the Michigan uh, license application I also filed uh, last week as well. Wow, that's a lot for those that have never seen that. And that's that's one operator. Now, if you know, if we've got 50 to 60 operators on on the site in the UK, then I would actually welcome a UK licensing regime because it just cuts down on my paperwork because I can just give them my license ID and it's it's job done. Um, so there is some kind of talk, and some people do hold the view within the within the affiliate industry that like licensing is a bad thing, but the reality on the ground in the in the UK, for example, is that we're already doing pretty much nearly all the paperwork for licensing anyway on an individual basis. So it would be easier just to do it on a central basis and, and get it done with. Um, so I, I do think it'll help. I do think the, I think a lot of operators have been quite hands-off in historically in a kind of a don't ask, don't tell. I, I, I don't want to know what you're doing. Just get me the customers. Yeah. Not, not all operators, but some. And I think that the licensing and the transparency and these kind of things and the, the big, really what's, what's kind of woken everybody up is the big fines that got handed out by the UK Gambling Commission. They really woke everybody up to, oh, we really need to know what our affiliates are doing, um, which is actually quite common if you say, look, if you look at the financial trading world where you know the broker is responsible for what their affiliates do and say. Um, so I, I think it's already happening. And I think licensing from an affiliate perspective will actually make affiliates' lives easier. And it just brings more trust and transparency that we're all working within the same framework and we're all working to the same rulebook. And I think that's super, super important as well. You talked before about measuring things based on acquisition, which obviously makes sense uh, when talking about affiliates. Are there any other measures that might be used? Because I'm guessing one of the challenges you're going to face is you know, year one of your partnership, you might be the best friend of an operator. And then year two, things might not be going as well on the traffic side and the acquisition side. And then, you know, that relationship could be could be an interesting one, depending on uh, the, the time of year or day or week and then how things are going at that moment. Oh, look, I, I'm, I'm under no illusions. You know, if we if we lose traffic, um, there's definitely going to be some operators that stop answering the phone to us. Um, that's just the nature of the beast. Um, However, we've been very careful about who we've built our business with and who we really partner with on a on a large scale. And the understanding is there that you know we we, we ride out the bad times um, with the good times. But it is, it, and again, it is one of the things that makes the affiliate industry so tough because, like, there probably is two kids in it. Like, if you take like a great example is people streaming, uh, playing slot games on Twitch. You know, I was, this was explained to me a couple of years ago. I thought it was ridiculous. Nobody would watch this. <laughs> uh, don't be crazy. You would be wrong. And, and you know, what's even worse is I would have been, I did some of the first kind of poker stars 
streaming of poker stars videos or people playing playing poker stars when I was at stars. So I actually understood it from a poker perspective. I just never thought anybody would do it from a slots perspective. And I was utterly, like I said, I'm utterly wrong. It still seems um, ridiculous, but yeah, it's amazing. But it's huge, hugely popular. And who are we to judge? So it, it is this case of, you know, there's there's marketing channels and there's communities and there's tactics that are being worked on right now that I don't understand and I don't get. And I'm going to make that classic uh, innovator's dilemma mistake and, and miss these things. And at some point, um, if I'm not on top of my game and we're not our, not just me, but me and the team are, aren't on top of our game, we have the potential to become irrelevant and somebody else is the is the is, is an amazing affiliate driving huge business to to operators. So that's also what makes it difficult because the ultimately the operators don't care. They just want to acquire players at a good cost that's ROI positive. Um so there a lot of them are you know not too picky on on how that happens. So within this topic I suppose I wanted to talk about revenue share and it's a hotly debated topic in the US when it comes to affiliates and the alignment of player versus operator, let's say, or misalignment in often uh, examples that are put out there. Can you just backtrack a little bit about the history of the revenue share business model when it comes to affiliates? Has it ever been something that's been scrutinized? Has it ever been something that's been perceived as negative? And I don't necessarily think it is as cut and dry as people make it out. And there's certainly plenty of nuance that goes into it. And, you know, any form of compensation from an operator, you know, comes from gambling losses in, in roundabout ways. So is it something that's always been a hot topic or is it something that might be US centric at the moment as we sort of grow the industry in this country? I I, I would argue when, so what, why, why would you operate on revenue share? Well, okay. If we, if we ignore, the player for a minute and just look at it from a from a marketing spend perspective if you're a marketing manager and you only have to pay somebody based upon performance that is your ideal dream marketing spend because every every marketing person listening to this has had the agency or somebody pitch them hey give us a ten thousand dollar test budget and we'll show you what we can do and if you actually said yes to all those ten thousand test budgets you'd be broke so we're only paying somebody based on a performance is is an is an ideal dream scenario and and the gambling industry is one of the few industries that that operates like this um so there's a huge demand for operators or by operators to work on a on a revenue share basis the the difficulty of working on say a cpa basis which is what's most common in the us is you don't know what the so basically all, all your spend is up front and you don't know what ultimately you don't you're taking a risk because you don't know what the player value is going to be in three to six months time so it's very very upfront uh very cash flow heavy and it's a it's a risk so from that perspective the preference is always going to be for rev share over cpa in an ideal world the the and then then back to your point around player protection and is there a misalignment of where of the player versus the affiliate versus the operator and, and whose side is the is the affiliate on? Is he on the player side or is he on the, the operator side? Um that that's that's an interesting area. My view is we have to be on the player's side because ultimately they're our business. I want that player to have a great experience with this operator because if they do, I want them to, you know, so every player has multiple accounts. So in a, in a fully functioning market where there's lots of competition, you know, your typical player will have say five or six accounts, maybe seven, eight, 10, whatever. So I've actually got multiple opportunities to sell that player to two or three great brands. If I deliver a great experience and if I deliver what I say my website is offering. So if we're showing, look, this is an amazing bonus. This is the better bonus, the best bonus compared to all of these. This is your right choice. We would recommend this. And if that lives up to those expectations, then they will come back to me and I get a second bite or second chance to maybe send that customer somewhere else. So if you think of it like a travel website, you know, booking.com or Expedia, they only get paid if you book that flight once. So their dream scenario is that they want you to be their first port of call for every flight and every hotel and every car rental. For for us, 
that's where we need to be because ultimately that's how we become a sustainable and kind of the, the, the kind of characteristics I thought about of actually building a brand and, and growing. Um, so that, that's, that's how I'd look at it. And I, I think it is heightened in situations where there are, um, let's say, people that are unverified uh, giving out advice on how to spend money. I think that's one area that people get really heated about, which you know I can understand why, but I do think there is certainly nuance. Obviously, as you said, revenue share is a, a performance metric, and then you step back from there with CPA. It's, a, it's simply an estimation of what the performance metric would be, and then it's a, a fixed price there, and then you go back even further to things like app downloads uh, or just straight sponsorship and, and the test budget type example you talked about. So it's, it is an evolution, I suppose, and people's understanding. And it varies by what, as you said, how do I add value to the player? Am I player friendly? And in examples like, like bonuses and, and even odds comparison, uh, it's a pretty easy, or it's an easier argument to make. Some may still not be interested in having that discussion and they're pretty staunch in their position, but I do think it is far more nuanced than we give credit to, to the industry. But, 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 even, but, but the thing about it is, even if you, let's say you, you banned RevShare and you banned CPA. Yeah. Well, well, well what's, what's, the, what's the marketing manager going to optimize on? Well, all he's going to do is he's going to say, well, hey, you sent me 20,000 clicks. Uh, 10% of those clicks converted into real money players and those players are worth X. He's then going to calculate a CPM or a CPC value off of that and say, hey, I'm willing to pay you two euros a click. So it doesn't, re- and in the same with the CPA deal, like a CPA deal will just be calculated, ultimately be calculated off a, a player value perspective. So there is no, you can never escape player value and they're all just different ways of paying out on player value the the rev share actually forces the the affiliate to be in it for the long haul because you want to see out the full lifetime of that customer where a cpa actually encourages more short-term behavior because it's an immediate uh cash flow so i'd actually argue the the revenue share encourages more responsible marketing and affiliate behavior. Is there an inside of you on, on the revenue share approach? Is it something that's been wrapped into some of the things we talked about before with some scrutiny on the industry and potential changes with licensing and things like that? Or is it something that you know generally people understand as you described it? It's just a way of assessing performance and, and other ways of doing it are less optimal. And although there might be situations where it it isn't perfect. Uh, it, it works relatively well for, for the purpose. Um, I, I haven't heard any scrutiny. I think it's a storm in a teacup. I, 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 I can't see any sensible marketing manager actually getting rid of it. So I wanted to ask just generally about the space because I know plenty of people have either thought about, started or are doing uh, businesses around the affiliate space or businesses that may incorporate that as a part of it. Is it something that you feel is is near exhausted in the possibilities that come with the the types of value that you can give to players, or is it something that's continually evolving and things are popping up year after year that you may not have thought about or others may not have considered, and it continues to have some form of innovation around it? There's there's constant innovation, um, and I think that's what keeps it really interesting. I think there's kind of some core values of what problems are you solving or are you like if you take a like a Twitch streamer playing slots, for example? Like, like we said, like who would have thought that was actually going to be a, a real thing? And, and fair play to the guys doing it. I think that they're highly entertaining. It's um, they provide you know they're providing entertainment, um, and that's very difficult to do on the internet because you're competing against everything on Netflix and everything else on the internet. So uh, anybody who can do that has to be extremely good at what they do because the internet's full of other things to, to go watch. I, I, I think, you know, there's some course, like when you look at the, the, say the sports betting industry, there's some core things that always will always be there. So things like odds comparison, uh, tipping is always going to be a, you're never going to get rid of that. That's always going to be a thing. There's different ways to do it and deliver on it. Um, if you look at, say, some of the, some of the guys in the U, UK uh, being really entertaining about it, I think is quite interesting. Uh, so the f- footy accumulators and stuff, which is more like a, I'd like probably closer to a barstool sports type entertainment product. Um, 
than anything else. So if you, I think Barstool is a great example of, of innovation in terms of they've been doing this for years, huge loyal following. Um, and then, you know, last week they, they did what they promised and, and got the app to number one in the, in the app store. Uh, that's a good day's work for any affiliate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll see how that evolution happens in, in other states as well. One final area I wanted to touch on is just the mentality around affiliates generally or even a specific area that pops out when it comes to Europe or the UK, let's say, versus the US. And obviously the, the timeline uh, uh, timelines are very different. You know, Maybe you can argue Nevada and, and even New Jersey are coming towards maturity or certainly Nevada, but other states are still in very earlier stages. Uh, and I think plenty of people are looking at places like Indiana and Colorado and now Michigan and, and so on. Do you have any general thoughts or advice or, or what's the, I guess, roadmap look like for someone thinking about being an affiliate? I think the, the, the US licensing process isn't easy. Um, and I think that's a huge barrier um, for most affiliates. Like I've had to provide uh, 10 years worth of tax returns everywhere I've lived since I was 18, every job I've had since I was 18, fingerprints, um in-laws details my parents details um university transcripts and the list is just endless like the amount of paperwork i've had to pull together over the last year for various licensing um and i'm you know that's only one person when you've got a board of directors and everybody on the board's got to do the same thing it it becomes a mountain of paperwork so i think that the difficulty the u.s face i think the u.s is leading the way with licensing i think licensing is the right answer I think the licensing, the documentation required for licensing is excessive um, because it is keeping affiliates, it is putting people off and keeping them out of the market. What ends up happening then is as an affiliate, there's there's more money to be made promoting offshore illegal bookmakers or casinos than there is promoting the onshore because you don't need a license, they're not paying taxes and they can afford to pay you more. And there's still enough states that are unregulated where, and even the regulated states where there's, there's enough people who are willing to still sign up to these sites. So I think there's still a long way to go in the US. Um, and we're really worried, like our kind of timelines for the US for the next five to 10 years. That's kind of how we're, we're looking at it. Um, so we're taking our time, we're building up slowly, building a brand, uh, refining the product and just, just kind of keep innovating and, and doing what we're doing in the US and really having a US specific strategy. For for other markets, uh, UK is a good example, Sweden, um, probably the other example as well, regulation is going to get tougher. It's going to get tougher everywhere. So kind of running your business as a business, um, building your model around licensing, building your model around compliance. Uh, these This is what we've done, and I'd highly recommend it because it's made our lives so much easier. Um, so we've you know literally built our product for from a compliance perspective as well. So if a new law gets introduced tomorrow somewhere, our website can be compliant within two hours. Um, and that can be very difficult if you've just got a, you know, if you haven't thought about that up front, that can be very, very difficult to do. So I would say, you know, affiliate marketing is tough. If you're passionate about it and you really love it, definitely go do it. It's, it's, a, it's a great thing to do and it's fun, um, but it's not easy. Are there any other frontiers you're looking at or is the US the number one priority for, for most in this space at the moment? Yeah, so the, the US takes up a, up a huge amount of time. Obviously, growing in the UK is important to us. Uh, we, we're also, we've just launched in Spain recently. Um, so we're, we're really focused on the on the Spanish market, which again is going through a new kind of regulatory, you know, they're, they're banning bonuses, uh, which is quite interesting for us because we're so bonus heavy. Um, so, you know, our whole product is built around bonuses, but we can't do bonuses. So how do we innovate? And so that's a really interesting challenge and timing for us. So we're, we're quite excited about that. Uh, we've launched recently in Italy as well. So another regulated market. And it's just building and growing on what we're doing. Um, it, it's all pretty scalable. And what works in one country typically works in another. So it, it's quite easy for us to to grow multiple markets um, at the same time. And like I said, I think that the, U, the U.S. isn't a short-term thing. It's a it's a slow and steady over the next over the next decade kind of thing. And and just finally, it strikes me that this industry is probably a decade or two old. It's relatively new in in that term, uh, as well as thinking about new markets opening up and just the proliferation of online sports betting and online gaming generally across the globe. 
is it something that you feel is in its earlier stages and it's going to be radically different over the next couple of decades? Or do you think it's it's pretty well advanced at this point and if you want to get involved, you've got to be thinking about all the all the points you mentioned around compliance, licensing, being a responsible and respectful uh, brand yourself and then obviously partnering with those who have similar mindsets? Yeah, I I think you know for, from a from an operator perspective you know the, the the glory days were just keep the website live and keep payment processing going and you you'll have a thriving business and now we're we're at the classic over the last few years we've been at the classic stage of the the consolidation phase so like we've we've got the flushers of the world and the the gvcs um from an affiliate perspective affiliates went through went through the same thing uh, so the likes of Katina, uh, Gaming Innovation Group, uh, Better Collective, etc., uh, Gambling.com, Natural Intelligence, you know, publicly listed companies, um, big, you know, big funds buying lots of websites and doing a huge consolidation. So there's there's been consolidation on on both sides, and I, th- I expect that to uh, continue. Um, and I think it'll be a case of, uh, it, I actually see this more as a mature industry right now, where with probably the exception of the US, I think the US got a bit more to go, uh, but it's definitely more of a mature industry and, you know, big, big operators deal with big affiliates and that's kind of the, the, the way to go. And they, they will get to the point where they'll just stop dealing with, with small to medium sized affiliates. Um, so scale is really important to survival. So I think that that's the challenge for anybody who launches. It's, it's how do I get big enough to matter and how do I get big enough to um, actually be relevant to these operators um, in, in both the near term and the future. Fitton, it's been fun. I appreciate the time. It's good to have someone like yourself explain some of the nuance that comes with this. I don't think it's something that gets covered well enough and I'm glad we're able to chat about it and hopefully those listening who are considering this path will get something out of it. I'm sure they will and with that in mind, what's the best way for them to follow along with what you're doing? And is Twitter the best way to do that? Uh, yeah, t- Twitter's fine. So Fintan Costello at Twitter. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. I'm more than happy to chat with anybody. And um, yeah, we post. I, I probably post more on, on LinkedIn than Twitter. And Jake, can I just say thank you so much for having me as well? It's, it's been a lot of fun and, and you're doing an amazing job with this podcast. So it's, it's great to be a, a little tiny part of that. I appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye.